Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 41. But Jesus said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? In his commentary on Luke, author and pastor Philip Riken recounts his childhood and how his parents instilled in him at a very early age a love for books. His mother was a voracious reader, his father a professor of English literature, and he grew up in a house full of books and from his earliest memories was literally surrounded by hundreds of classics. But of all the great books by all the famous authors, he said there was one book that was his favorite. A large green volume entitled Answers to Questions by Frederick Haskin, 1926. For a child, it was a book of wonders. It seemed to have answers for every subject. And he recounts some of the most memorable to him. Question, do fish sleep? Answer, fish do not sleep. At times, they remain quiet in pools and streams. Question, are pigs naturally dirty farm animals? Answer, pigs are among the cleanest animals if allowed to be so. Question, is it true that a person dreaming of falling from a great height will die from shock if he does not awaken before he hits the ground? Isn't that something you've always wondered? (laughs) Answer, physicians say that such an idea is ridiculous although this is not susceptible of absolute proof, for if any man has ever died from the shock of landing at the bottom of the dream, he has never had a chance to tell about it. In like manner, the Gospels record for us a myriad of questions that were posed to Jesus. The Gospels are sprinkled with accounts of Jesus being asked many questions covering a variety of subjects. In fact, someone counted 183 questions if you put all the Gospels together. Some examples include, which commandment is the most important? Or, why do, you, why do your disciples not fast? Or, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Or, when will the kingdom come? Or, who is my neighbor? Or, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? There was no shortage of questions that were asked of Jesus, and he had an answer for them all. And, as we have seen recently in Luke chapter 20, the various questions that the religious leaders posed to Jesus. Who gave you the authority to do these things? We saw that in verse 2. 
Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Verse 22. In the resurrection, whose wife will this woman be? Verse 33. And what we have seen in this chapter is that the religious leaders are not asking questions so as to understand, but to gather evidence so as to condemn. They're trying to build a case against Jesus so that they can establish guilt and present him to Pilate for execution. That is their plan. And we saw that Jesus has sufficiently shut their mouths with every question to the point where they no longer dared to ask him anymore. And in our text today, the tables have now turned. It's Jesus' turn to ask a question. And his question concerns King David and the Messiah. It's a question about the Messiah that would be difficult to answer, especially if you have your mind already made up. Jesus points out two seemingly contradictory ideas from Psalm 110, and the heart of his question is, how can Messiah be David's son and also David's Lord? So let's walk through our text once more and then we'll go back and we'll make some observations. Verse 41, Jesus said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? That's how he opens up this, his interrogation. And then he quotes, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then what Jesus is driving at here, David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? So the first question I have when I look at this text is, who is the them from verse 41? Jesus said to them. Luke doesn't tell us who the them is. But this exchange is recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. And if we were to hop over to Matthew... Matthew 22:41, same scene, says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. So the them is the Pharisees. I'm not sure my, why my little squiggly is not under the word them, but it's close enough. But then there's also a they. How can they say, Who is the they? Luke doesn't tell us. This is where we lean on Mark. Mark 12.35 And Jesus taught in the temple. As Jesus taught in the temple, He said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? So you put all this together and this is the scene. The question Jesus asked is directed to the Pharisees. And he quotes the Psalms, reminding the Pharisees that this is what the scribes teach also. Jesus is not smuggling in some foreign idea that the Scriptures contradict or that the religious leaders deny. This is what the Psalm teaches, and this is what the scribes affirm. The Messiah is the Son of David. It is undisputed that the Messiah is going to be a king. 
but it is also undisputed that he would be a king like David. In fact, he would come from David's own body. He would be a descendant. This is replete throughout the Old Testament. I don't like to just make assumptions and move on, so let me just give you a few examples. The clearest clearest example being the promise given to David himself. This is Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. God speaking through Nathan to David. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so what a promise. This is a prophecy. This is foretelling the future. And David's having sons. He's having kids. And everyone's keeping an eye on those sons. Is this going to be the one? I wonder if this is going to be the one. And then Solomon comes to power. He's anointed as the king over Israel. And he reigns during arguably the greatest time in Israel's history. They had wealth. They had power. They had peace on every side from their enemies. And Solomon builds a house for God's name, just like it says. But then you read Solomon's life and they're watching his life before them and you quickly realize this is not the one that we've been waiting for. His reign does not last forever. He does not uh, practice righteousness as this promised king. And uh, he dies just like the rest of them. And so it wasn't him. But God's not finished speaking about this subject In fact, he sends prophets to the nation who continue to foretell the coming of this son of David. This is one you know, I'm certain. Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse uh, verse 7, Of the increase of His government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is uncontestably messianic. It is describing one who will rule and reign forever. He will be like David. He will sit on David's throne. Certainly the son of David that they were expecting. All other kings will die. This is a king who will never die. I'll just give you one more. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6. Speaking through the prophet, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Think family tree here. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. 
In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. It was widely accepted that the Messiah was going to be a king, and that he was going to come from the line of David. Promises were given to David. He would have a son who would rule the nations. So this Davidic king was very integral to the future of Israel. Now, if you've ever wondered why the New Testament starts with a genealogy, it's to prove what I've just shown you, that Jesus fits the criterion of this Davidic king. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So someone who has never read the Bible, totally ignorant of what it contains, picks up a New Testament and says, I'm going to read this from the beginning, and they start reading Matthew 1.1. They are picking up a book in the middle of the story. That's like you grabbing a novel off the shelf and starting in chapter 12. There is a backstory that makes the genealogy in Matthew 1 extremely important. And we have what's been called the begatitudes. So-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so, and on and on. Matthew wants to prove the lineage of Mary that she is of David's family. And then you get to chapter 3, and Luke, sorry, Luke chapter 3, he records the genealogy of Joseph, who would be the legal guardian of Jesus. Why does he do that? Because he wants to prove he also was from the line of David, so that Jesus, his son, would not be rejected on some kind of technicality. So he goes through in Luke chapter 3, and he proves that also through the line of Joseph, even though he was not truly his father, but he was his legal guardian, he was also from the line of David. Jews were sticklers for this kind of stuff. This was very important. This is also why when Jesus is traveling and preaching, one of the first people to recognize him as the Messiah is blind Bartimaeus. Do you remember this blind beggar who is begging on the street? And what does he call out when he wants to get the attention of Jesus? He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, you know, I mean, son of Joseph. No, no, son of David. What's, what, is, what is he saying here? You are the Messiah. You are the one. So when Jesus brings this up in our text, the, the idea of the Messiah being the son of David is not controversial. No one was arguing that he would not be the son of David. It was well established. There was nothing provocative here. The text is short. I'm just going to read it again. Jesus said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? In other words, we all accept this. But if he is the Christ, what do you do with this? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What do you do with that? 
David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? It's almost like a riddle. Now the issue here is not the first part about David's son. It's the last part about him being David's Lord. In other words, what is Jesus saying here? What kind of man is the Messiah going to be where David can call him his ruler, his master, his sovereign, his God? This is not how they pictured the Messiah. So Jesus is making a very important point here. So let's go back to Psalm 110. So we can look at this and I can explain the language a little bit. Psalm 110 begins, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Very almost identical to what Luke records. This is known as one of the royal psalms, Psalm 110, which is emphasizing God's king and his future reign. These are also called coronation psalms. Um, Richard read two of them, Psalm 2, Psalm 110. God is enthroning his king, who is the Christ, and he is the king of the nations. He is going to put all of God's enemies under his feet. God is going to conquer uh, and subdue his enemies through this appointed king. So, the title, A Psalm of David, that is in the original text, that is inspired. Your Bible translators did not stick that in there. That is in the original Hebrew. So we know without a doubt David is the author. And David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, describes two lords in verse 1 here. Now, this might be review for many of you. I don't know why everything has shifted. This is supposed to be under Lord. These PCs, I'm telling you. We need to go Macintosh. I'm sorry. Pretend with me, will you? If you have the word Lord in all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the divine name Yahweh. This is a name the Jews would not pronounce. They were afraid if they mispronounced it, it would be blasphemy. A violation of the third commandment. So they dropped the use of that name. In fact, even today, if you, were, if you use the name to an Orthodox Jew, they find that offensive. So that's the first Lord, as we use our imagination here. <laughs> the second Lord is not in all capital letters. And this is the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord, and is used of God regularly throughout the Old Testament. It is never used of a man. It is never used of an angel. It is never used of any kind of earthly ruler. Adonai is used exclusively for God in the Old Testament. So David is saying here, Yahweh says to my Adonai. Yahweh, the name of God, says to Adonai, the title of God. Lord. Now to make things even more interesting, the Jews, when they would read the scripture, they would not pronounce the divine name. So you know what they said instead? They said Adonai instead of saying Yahweh. 
So when the Jews would read this scripture, they would say, Adonai says to my Adonai. So think about what they're saying here. Think about what's being communicated by David here. This is the son of David. Who is this? So David, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, describes how Yahweh is going to appoint this king over all of the earth to where all of his enemies will be put under his feet. And he calls this future son of his Adonai, which means Lord. This is the Hebrew. This is not Luke's text. Luke wrote in Greek. Many of you know that, I'm sure. The New Testament comes to us in Greek, not Hebrew. So question, how did Luke write this psalm when he wrote Luke 20? What Luke does is he uses the same word for both, which is the word for Lord, which is kurios. So, Luke's not going to use the divine name. He uses the title just like the Jews would, but in the Greek language it's going to be Kurios and not Adonai. So it says basically the same thing. The Kurios said to my Kurios. So you have two lords presented here. You have two titles for God presented here. What do you make of that is what Jesus is asking. Now, fast forward, pause here, fast forward after the resurrection, Jesus ascends into heaven and he becomes this Lord who reigns over all the earth. He is the Son of God who is now crowned as the Lord of the earth, Lord of the universe. This is what Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2. Check this out. Therefore God has highly exalted Him, Jesus, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look at this. After he has been exalted, God gives him a name that is above every name. It's not the name Jesus. Don't read this and think, oh yeah, God gave us a name above every name and the name is Jesus. That's not what he's saying here. There are millions of guys named Jesus. There's probably 500 in this city alone. It's not the name Jesus, the name of Jesus, which is Lord. Curios. What must every tongue confess? That Jesus is Curios. That Jesus is Lord. My last slide with arrows, and I am thankful. God exalts him to his right hand. He is declared to be Lord. And he is the kurios to whom we must obey. And the kurios who is going to put all of his enemies under his feet. 
And that's who Jesus is. And that's what God is doing. When Richard read Psalm 2 about the Lord, Yahweh, enthroning His King and making Him ruler of the nations, that's, that's the picture. So if we go back to Psalm 110... Here's the controversy. He's going to be David's son, but he's going to be David's Adonai, or David's Kurios. His ruler, his master, his sovereign, his God. This is the riddle. This is what Jesus is proposing. What do you do with this? Now, just to put this in perspective... You're you're the Pharisees, you're expecting an earthly ruler, you're expecting a political king, you're expecting another one like David. Imagine Solomon showed all the signs of being this king and David worshipped him. What? Imagine David calling him his Adonai. This is my son Solomon. He's my Adonai. He's my Lord. He's, he's my Kurios. It's a title that's reserved for God. It's not a title that's reserved for earthly rulers. He's not just saying, well, because he's this king that God has appointed, he's my superior. He's not saying that. The son of David is going to be David's Lord. Now, we talked a little bit last week about how the Son was in some sense an extension of the Father, and the Son was always subservient to the Father, and the patriarch did not submit to the Son. The Son would always submit to the patriarch of the family. In fact, the Son was so submitted to his Father that he couldn't say his own name without mentioning his Father. I am Judah, the son of Joshua. That relationship never changed. There there was never any kind of situation where that relationship would change. But in a complete reversal of roles, in an inversion of the hierarchy here in the family, David is going to call this son Lord. A word reserved for God and you're going to have this upside-down picture of David being in submission to his son. So that's what Jesus asks him here. If he calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Now the religious leaders, if you notice, this exchange just sort of ends. And then it's sort of on to the next scene. The religious leaders don't answer the question. If they do, it's not recorded for us in Luke. There's no dialogue. There's no debate. There's no engagement over the subject. There's no proposed answers by the Pharisees. It just ends. But if we go to Matthew, he tells us something additional at the end of that. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions.
So the Pharisees are so committed to their preconceived ideas of a Davidic ruler who would establish a political kingdom on earth, who would crush and suppress the Gentile nations, who would exalt Israel to their rightful place. And because of all of that, they had no category for the king that God describes in the Scriptures. They had no category for someone who was going to come and save them from sin and death. One who was going to come and save them from a far greater enemy than the Romans. They wanted another David. They wanted someone who would come and fight their battles. They wanted someone God would use to conquer and subdue. And it was a political king. And that's all they wanted So that's all they looked for. That's all they wanted, and that's all they looked for. And that should be a warning to us in the church, people who take the Bible seriously, that there is a danger coming to the Scriptures with a preconceived idea of what you think God is like. Based on what the culture says, based on your feelings. And if you start interpreting the Scripture based on those things, you're going to find yourself doing just as the Pharisees did. You're going to create different ideas that the Bible doesn't teach. For example, if you think God would never send anyone to hell, I don't believe there is a judgment day coming. I don't believe God's so petty that He's going to judge us for being bad. and you go to the Bible, you are going to selectively cite those verses that talk about the God of love, and you are going to ignore, or even worse, distort the clear teaching of Scripture to fit your predetermined model of God. If your idea, which you get from the culture, is love is love, and who is God to say that two people in a committed relationship can't be together... And there are no boundaries when it comes to love. And you have this big, squishy, opaque idea of what love is. You will look for a like-minded church who will tell you the same things. So you will go to the United Methodist Church and they'll tell you everything you want to hear. Or you can go to the Episcopalian Church and they'll tell you everything you want to hear. Or you will find some other visible religious system that cooperates with your vision of God. And the Bible has a word for that. It's called idolatry. It's fashioning a God after your own image and worshiping that instead. So the religious leaders were so committed to their political king, their presuppositions about the Messiah, that when their Savior came, the one that is described in Psalm 110 and elsewhere, they hated Him. They challenged him. They confronted him. They twisted his words. They plotted his arrest and execution. But if the Pharisees were willing to see and to change their thinking, if they were able to see the Scriptures with new eyes, 
if they could read Psalm 10 and what it describes here about this Messiah who is to come, who carries this title of Lord God. What kind of king might this look like? What, sh- what, what would such a figure be like? Well, he would certainly be powerful. He would have power over creation. He could still a storm. He could direct an entire school of fish. He could cause a herd of pigs to obey at his command. He could have power over the elements. Even the molecular level. He could walk on the surface of the water. He could turn water into wine. He could cause a fig tree to wither. If the Pharisees could clear their mind of this political leader and embrace the Messiah that God describes, what might he be like? Well, certainly he would have power over sickness and disease. If he really is Adonai, he could heal lepers. lepers. He could cause the blind to see. He could heal paralytics and drive out fevers and even raise the dead if he was who the Scriptures describe him as. He could even have power over the spiritual realm. He could cast out demons and direct their goings. He could overcome the devil's temptations and not be seduced by evil. Undoubtedly, he would have power in his words. He would be impossible to refute. He would command things and they would come to be. He would be able to know what is in a man, even his deepest thoughts and motives. The people would say of him, no one ever spoke like this man. Surely, if this one ever came, large crowds would marvel at his wisdom. If this one did come, he would be perfectly holy. He would walk walk in absolute moral perfection, even down to the deepest level. His thoughts and motives would always be righteous, and he would oppose all kind of sin and evil, outward and inward, religious and non-religious. He would think and speak and act with perfect blamelessness, this king. And because he would be perfectly holy, all of those other divine attributes would flow from that holiness. Love, mercy, compassion, kindness. He would welcome children and never think himself above spending time with them. He would sympathize with those who suffer. He would embrace the outcast and the dejected. This kind of king. There would be none whom he would turn away. There would be none in society he would disregard. The least among men would not be the least in his eyes. I imagine this kind of king would be gentle beyond measure. He would be approachable beyond expectation. He would be gracious beyond imagination. 
If this Adonai was to come, He would reconcile God and man. He would solve our deepest problems. He would recover what Adam lost. He would make us acceptable to God. If this Adonai was to come, He would transform the world. He would bring with Him the kingdom of heaven. He would lead people by the multitudes into that kingdom. People who do not deserve to be there. What would it look like if this Adonai came down? What would it look like if this Son of David and Son of God came and spent time among men? The Pharisees couldn't answer his question. And the question I propose is, can you? Can you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Son. Thank You for the Adonai who has come to be God in the flesh, to dwell among us, to reveal to us the truth of the living God, who has not only shown us the way, but has provided the way for us. I pray if there are any in the hearing of my voice, who do not know this Adonai, this King, this Son of David, Son of God, that they by faith would receive Him today. That You would so provoke their hearts, that You would so move upon them with Your power that it would be unmistakable in their eyes that He is the One that You spoke of. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.